The passage for tonight is in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. There was a man named James Warren Jones. Do any of you all know James Warren Jones? You might. Uh, James Warren, or Jim Jones, as he became known, was an eccentric young uh, kid, young teenager. Um, He didn't have a ton of friends. Uh, He spent a lot of his free time studying the popular world leaders of his day, such as uh, Joseph Stalin, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Adolf Hitler, Karl Marx, those people in his age who had successfully gathered many, many, many people to follow them toward some end, sought out himself to gather a following. And from his birthplace and his collegiate years in Indiana, from there to California, and from California with a a cohort of people down to the northeast corner of South America in a country called Guyana, depending on your uh, level of Spanish. Uh, Jim Jones successfully gathered uh, near a 1,000 people to follow him. And from Jonestown, South America, he had what you might call a cult. And in 1978, on November 18, 1978 to be specific, An envoy of people from the United States, including then-California Congressman Leo Ryan and a number of people with him, they traveled from the U.S. down to Jonestown, Guyana, South America, to investigate reports of human rights violations amongst the people of Jonestown. Ryan and his his cohort visited, visited this village, And on their way back to the airport, they were ambushed by a number of people from Jonestown. Congressman Leo Ryan and five others with him were killed. And later that day, Jim Jones gathered 909 of his followers around the pavilion at Jonestown. And he convinced them, including 303 children, to drink cyanide poisoning because he was a revolutionary. And this was a revolutionary suicide. It was going to show the world that what they were doing was right and good. Jim Jones gathered a following, and it ended terribly and tragically for those people and their families on that day. January 12th of this year, it was a Sunday evening, an unusually warm Sunday evening, I sent out a cryptic text to about 30 or 40 people here at TU, and I asked them to meet me on the stairs of Sharp Chapel. And people are laughing because many of those people are in this room. 
And on that night, uh, my intentions were to bring people to Sharp Chapel and tell them about some things we were going to be doing in RUF that semester. And I had gone to the grocery store and I had some frozen popsicles and stuff with me. Pretty harmless. The problem was is that as people began to show up at Sharp Chapel, they were expecting uh, something a little more exciting. Uh, My cryptic text led them to believe that uh, there was going to be something really fun going on that night, kind of mysterious, maybe like an RUF hazing event. (laughs) And so uh, from that place, by 10.15, there were about 40 people who were kind of all in a frenzy and who I was doing my best to uh, not squish their, uh, their excitement and their frenziedness. At about 10.15, I asked them to line up single file to close their eyes and put their hands on the shoulders of the person in front of them. And I led them around campus, the very beautiful campus that you've been walking around these last two weeks. I led them between buildings, across the lawn out here, and up into the raised flower beds in front of the library, victimizing a few azalea bushes along the way. And so there we were, positioned in the azalea bush. We had lowered ourselves so people couldn't see us. And I delivered to them the most anticlimactic <laughs> mission and story of history. I could gather a following. I did. 30, 40 people. Uh, mine, uh, thankfully, didn't end tragically and terribly like Jim Jones did. But it's easy to gather a following. This thing... <laughs> Y'all are going to hear a cuss word tonight. You know, careful. Uh, these. These. <laughs> now I feel completely ridiculous. These stories show us tragically and comically that following is something that is intuitive, that is part of the fabric of our world, is part of the fabric of our lives. It's something we do. It's something that uh, we're a part of. We follow all sorts of things. We follow bands. Uh, the more eccentric and niche, the cooler. We follow clothing styles. We follow celebrities. We follow our friends on social media. We follow advice. We follow teachings. We follow economics ideas. The weirder, the better. We follow all sorts of things. Jesus tonight in this passage that we've just heard, he is coming out of uh, the wilderness announcing that he has good news as we saw last week and read again briefly tonight in verses 14-15. And his very first act in public ministry that Mark records is him going out and gathering some followers. And we see him do just that as he walks up to the sea. And as we look and see what Jesus did to gather followers and what what following Jesus entails, I want you to be thinking about two things in your own lives and in your minds, even tonight. And they are these. The first one is, who or what am I following? And secondly, how is that thing shaping me? Either for good or for ill. So who or what do I follow? And how is that shaping me? So let's look at this first thing tonight that we see in this passage. And it is simply this. Jesus calls people to follow him. To follow him. As we begin to look at that, and you see it in your bulletin right there, Jesus simply goes out to uh, the side of this sea, 
and he looks first at Andrew and Simon Peter, and he looks at them and says, follow me. And they turn and follow him. What's interesting about what, what Jesus is doing here is that uh, he is looking at these people that, as far as we know, he doesn't know at all. He has never met them before, and he commands them. It's an imperative word there that our English Bibles get that. He looks at them and says, follow me. Not, hey, uh, look, it looks like you're doing something with the nets. Uh, maybe in a little bit, come over here and we'll talk. He looks at them and says, follow me, and they follow him. He, may, he is making a demand of their life. And in that very action, we see something at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus, and it is this, that Jesus is the one who initiates relationships with his people. And we see it explicitly here. We see it elsewhere in the Gospels and throughout the rest of the Bible. John 15, 16, John says it this way. It records Jesus saying, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And I know that that, uh, that, that rubs some of us uh, the wrong way. Um, perhaps it's going to be a little bit hard to stomach. I, I don't want to say that just brashly and, and just go by as if, you know, you, that doesn't hit you somewhere. Um, that's what Jesus says. And we can wrestle with that and talk about it. I'd love to talk about what that means with you. But the clear picture from, from the teaching of the Bible is that for someone to follow Jesus means... That Jesus comes and initiates that relationship. He makes a demand and a command, and people follow him. Now, I would argue it's more of a, of a wooing, that Jesus entices us, that he convinces us that following him is good and actually will lead to a wholeness and restoration of brokenness and all of those things. But we have to see that Jesus effectually calls people, and they follow him. And this is way different than the other rabbis or teachers of that day. Because in that first century, what would normally happen is if people wanted to study under somebody, a great teacher or something like that, or a Jewish rabbi, they would come to the rabbi and ask permission to follow them and to be apprenticed to them. And the rabbi would respond. But here we see that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry that he, in effect, is saying, I'm not your average teacher. I'm not just Joe Rabbi coming down the street. I'm doing something totally fresh and new, and it's going to blow your mind. I feel like I need to say that after I uh, said coming down the street. Um, so Jesus is coming. He's not just another teacher or rabbi. He's doing something totally different. Second thing we have to see about this is that in our English Bibles, don't pick this up, but in Greek, the, the verb for, that he calls out and says, follow me, has ongoing implications. In, in essence, what he's saying is, follow me and continue following me. He's calling these people to a lifestyle, not just to a dis, one-point decision or a one-time decision. He's calling them to do something that has ongoing implications for the totality of their lives. It's a lifestyle. It's a continuous action. Now, whether you would consider yourself a Christian or not tonight, uh, it, it really doesn't matter. I, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, whether or not you consider yourself a Christian, we have to understand just how huge this idea is. Let's see. It's like 
Uh, have you ever had someone uh, take a picture of you in a really strange moment, a very candid moment? Maybe you're uh, doing something weird or you're making a weird face or you're like jumping in the air and your shirt's flying up or something just bizarre and someone takes a picture at that moment and before you can even do anything, it's out on Instagram or they Snapchat it to somebody and it's out there. Anybody have that happen? Yes. It's awful. It's embarrassing. It's, it's frustrating because... That's not the real you. It's this embarrassing or uh, maybe you've done something dumb, kind of this snapshot of your life, which isn't the full picture of you. And I would actually suggest that, that if you think the Christian life or if you think of the Christian life and following Jesus as just me looking at these individual snapshots of my life, whether they are of my successes, spiritually, morally, whatever, or my failures, spiritually, morally, If you think the Christian life is the sum total of these snapshots, you will forever be on a roller coaster in your relationship with Jesus. Because look, the truth is that even for people who are actively committed to following Jesus, that lifestyle of following Jesus is far more like a video, is far more of an unfolding drama with highs and lows and everything in between than these individual snapshots, you will screw up. You will fail in embarrassing ways. I do. Good grief, I do. You will. You do. And what we have to understand is, uh, and there's theological words for this, and I'm just going to introduce them because they're so important. If you grasp these, they... They actually have the ability to change the way you think about Jesus and your relationship with Him. The first one is this. We have to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. Those are huge words. Here's what they mean. Justification simply means this. That through what Jesus has done, you can become right with God. And that is a one-time pardon by God of your sin because you believe that Jesus has taken your sin on Himself and that was dealt with on the cross. And God punished that on the cross when, when Jesus died. And because of that act, you can be justified. Think of the court system. You can be declared right. There is a right judgment given to you because of what Jesus has done. And that is a one-time-in-history event. When you trust in Jesus for the first time, when you take the first step toward Him, you are justified, made right in God's eyes. Now, the second step and every single step after that is the process of sanctification. It's the ongoing process of God making you more and more holy, of Him making you be more and more like Jesus. And you have to understand that it's ongoing. And it will absolutely have great moments of of success when you will say no to things you should say no to and yes to things you should say yes to. And that will be amazing. And you will feel that. And there will be times when you look at something and you can honestly say, I shouldn't do that, I know I shouldn't do that, and I want to do that, I'm going to do that. And so it will have these tremendous lows. And if you don't have the category for that being the normal Christian life, you will burn out and you will ever wonder if your justification was true. 
We have to understand those things are totally different. That an earnest following Jesus and an, an earnest life of struggling with your sin and wanting to change and be different, that is the normal Christian life. And so Jesus says, follow me. He calls us into the relationship. And it has ongoing implications for all of our lives. The second thing we see about following Jesus is that he says, follow me. Not just follow some ideas or, or uh, follow this, but follow me. Follow everything about me. In that time uh, when, when I would go ask a rabbi or when you would go ask a rabbi if you could study under them. And they would say, sure, follow me. What that meant was, apprentice yourself to me. Come and study under me. Commonly, it meant, come live with me. Learn everything about the way that I am and the way that I work and function so that you might learn my ways. And Jesus is, is picking up on that. He's saying, absolutely, follow me. Come live with me. Learn my mission. Watch the way that I love people. Watch the way that I move toward the outsiders and the broken and the dejected. Follow me. And if we're going to be nervous, if we're going to be honest, this makes us pretty nervous. Because look what happens in the passage right there. For those that Jesus tells to follow him, they leave their careers and they leave their family. And you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, does me following Jesus necessarily mean that I have to leave my career, that I have to become a full-time missionary? I want to... I want to help relieve that pressure, kind of. <laughs> because what I think is going on in this passage, and most scholars in, my, in studying this would agree with me, is that what we have here is Jesus calling people specifically to full-time vocational ministry. What he's doing is he's, he's calling uh, the first four of what would eventually be 12 of his initial disciples, the apostles, who would become the foundation of the New Testament church, this is a unique calling. Because elsewhere in the Bible, we, we see Jesus not calling people out of their profession. In fact, He calls people to go be in their professions, to go be in the places where they, where they already naturally are. He calls people to return to their families and to be salt and light and to bring beauty and dignity where it's been lost through sin and the fall. So this is a picture of the call of, of Jesus calling people to the ministry. But following Jesus absolutely means He's going to call you to ministry. Everybody who Jesus calls to follow Him is necessarily going to be involved in His mission. And here's what that means. That those whom God calls to follow Him, He also gifts and equips and enables you to bring all that you are and use it for the good of others. He gives some of you incredible minds which can diagnose these deep problems in society or in corporations or at a, or at a wellhead or um, out in the business world and economics world. He gives some of you the ability to look at those things and see that they're broken and, and help people. And He gives others of you the ability to see musical notes lining up on a page in unbelievable ways. 
in such a way that it would actually be wrong for you to not go be a composer. Or it would be perhaps wrong for you not to go be an engineer, but you are to take your calling into that place. You're to take your gifts into that place and love and serve the people around you. And some of you, God might actually call to the ministry. He might call you to uh, be in full-time vocational ministry. And this is funny for me because uh, for my whole life, I had pretty much one goal, and it was this. I want to make enough money to where I can belong to a golf course. I want to, I want to belong to a country club. Now, if along the way I met a really hot woman and we had a couple cute kids and maybe a white house with a picket fence, that would be nice too. But I really just wanted to join a country club, y'all. And so uh, my life was kind of oriented around that. After college, I got the job I thought that I always wanted. I was working at Bank of Oklahoma in their oil and gas lending division. I was set to make a lot of money. I did make a lot of money for a little while. And there I was right in the middle of that cubicle farm in my chair, staring at a computer screen, doing exactly what I had always wanted to do, and I was dying inside. Because what God was revealing to me over the course of that year was that money and golf is not going to make me happy. I had bought into the American dream, and what I realized that year is that the American dream is the American lie. And there are many of you in this room who have bought into that same dream. I hear it because I'm an orientation mentor, and when it goes around the room, that's what people say. I want to come and make money. Uh, good grief. Uh, 40% of the incoming freshman class is petroleum engineers. I know there is absolutely a right way to do that, to be a petroleum engineer to the glory of Jesus. And I also know that there is an insane amount of money to be made there. And there are many, many people, and perhaps some of you, that are just chasing that dollar. I was... And I want to tell you on this side of it, it's going to be empty. And so what does it look like to follow Jesus? Where does that come to a head in your life? It doesn't have to be a vocational issue, but maybe it means that you stop buying into the idea that career and achievement is the end-all, be-all. Maybe what your professor thinks about you or what your parents think about you in your grades or what that company thinks about you and your grades isn't the most important thing in the world. It's not. What if it means that you stop thinking about and buying into this idea that, that being married and having kids is that's when you'll finally be happy or be fulfilled? It's not. Look, I'm happily married with three wonderful little girls who are at times very, very crazy. But mostly wonderful. They're great. I, I love them as much as I could love them. They don't fulfill me. I have a job that I love. It, it doesn't fulfill me. And so I'm going to tell you 10 years down the road from you, 12 years down the road from some of you, 15 from others of you, to buy into and to give yourself in following anything other than Jesus is absolutely going to leave you wanting. 
And you will forever go from thing to thing or experience to experience trying to satisfy that. And it simply can't be done outside of Jesus. You weren't created for it to be done outside of Him. But we don't believe that. We really don't. Um, Some days I don't believe it. I struggle to believe the very gospel that I'm telling you to believe. It's hard to believe. Because we live in a world that is bombarding us with all sorts of messages, offering you hope and joy and satisfaction and pleasure in all these other places. And Jesus is looking at you saying, follow me. And there is joy and hope everlasting. We don't believe it because we've actually, I think, misunderstood what Jesus is calling us to. We misunderstand what he's calling us, what following him actually means. So let me be very clear. Let me just tell you what following Jesus means. Because when we get it, we ought to be the most joyful people, the most kind, the most fun, throw the best parties and be the most fulfilled because we are joining the best mission in the whole world. And it is this, following Jesus for the good and the sake of others. That's it. That's what he's calling us to do. We see it right there. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, uh, pop Christianity has taken this and done all sorts of hideous things with it, from terrible songs to terrible t-shirts and to terrible everything. And we kind of need to reclaim what Jesus is saying here and to understand what he is saying is that when you follow me, when you apprentice yourself to me, I am going to teach you what it means to actually love people. And to care about their deepest needs and not just what they can bring you or how they can make you feel. He's teaching us to be students of people and to learn them so we can know how to love them. That's what Jesus is calling us to. It's his call to bring peace and what the Bible calls shalom, which is this full orb people of uh, this full orb word and idea of restoration, making things Uh, beautiful that have been broken, bringing justice where there has been injustice, bringing reconciliation where there's been racism and poverty and all sorts of stuff. Jesus came to bring that, and He is inviting and calling people to be a part of His mission to bring that, not just to individual people, yes, to that, but also to the whole world. You see, Jesus doesn't just look down in this passage... And invite us to say a prayer or walk down an aisle or come be baptized as an, as an end in itself. He is saying, follow me and hang on because the game is on. I'm changing the world and if you are tied to me, you are coming with me. And to do anything less than that, to truncate Jesus' message into something smaller than that, is the equivalent of saying that coffee is all about the caffeine. Because look, we know it's all about the undertones and about the bitterness and, and about the complexity of the aroma and all that stuff, right? We all get that. None of you guys drink Starbucks, do you? No, the devil is at Starbucks. Drink local Fair trade, organic stuff. Coffee's not about the caffeine. It's about all of that beauty. To look at Jesus and being a Christian as simply a process of going out and asking people to pray a prayer is like looking at Colorado and saying, I think it's decent. You know, it's kind of flat. 
It's like walking into eastern Colorado and saying it's flat when the whole western side of the state is absolutely beautiful, breathtaking. You can't truncate what Jesus is coming here to bring and the message that he's calling people to. Uh, we see this unfolded really beautifully. How many of you watch um, What Not to Wear on TLC? Got any What Not to Wear watchers in here? Mostly guys raising hands, oddly enough. Um, there was an episode uh, a little while back with Dolly from Memphis. Any of y'all remember this one? It's pretty powerful. Uh, Dolly from Memphis. She is, uh, if I must say so myself, uh, she is about a 60-year-old woman. Um, she, had been, she was at the tail end of a dissolved marriage. Uh, and in the words of her friends who nominated her for the show, uh, she dressed like a man because she didn't want to stand out and be noticed by men. She had incredibly low self-esteem, and they brought her into the show, and they do what they always do. They take them shopping. They give them this whole complete makeover. And the scene that I think captures this so beautifully and powerfully is when she's in the salon getting made over by Ted, and he's uh, just put a nice cut and color on her hair. Cost her about $130. No. Uh, a nice cut and color on her hair. And um, he spins her around. And when she takes a look at herself in the mirror, she loses her breath. She's speechless, and tears begin to form in her eyes. And Ted looks at her and says, How deep and pretty and sexy your eyes are now. And Dolly looks up and says, uh, Those are tough adjectives for me to apply to myself. And Ted says, Yeah, but don't you see yourself as pretty now? And Dolly says, yeah, but it's been so hard to see myself as pretty for so long. And Ted says, so tell me, how does it feel to call yourself pretty? And Dolly said, weird, <laughs> really, really weird. But it feels good though, right? Dolly starts nodding and starts crying and says this, I feel pretty. I look pretty. I'm still trying to get used to feeling and looking pretty, though, but now I know it's possible. Look, uh, for some of you, the idea of Jesus actually wanting you and, and calling you to follow him and you actually feeling that in your heart right now, if not at some time in the past, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, no, not me. Because you're looking at the story of your life and all of your failures and the ridiculous and awful things you've done or thought or said. And you can't imagine Him coming to you and saying, no, there's beauty there. We just need to do this. Let me take all of that sin and its effects and its burden from you. Let, let me lift that off of you so that it can reveal the beauty that is there. Because look, every one of you are made in God's image and are absolutely endowed with incredible worth that you would not believe, that you will not believe until God convinces you that it's true, that you are beautiful and you are worth something. And Jesus is coming and saying, let me take everything from you that is keeping you from believing that. And if you could only Take a, take a peek down the corridor of time and see the ways that God is going to use you in His mission to change the world, you would look at it now and say, I don't believe it. It's so weird. 
It's so weird to think that that's there right now, but it's there. Jesus is calling you to follow Him for the sake of others. Will you heed His call and be a part of the most beautiful unfolding of anything that has ever happened in the world? It is called the Gospel. And it is bringing restoration, peace, and shalom to everywhere in every corner of this world, starting with your heart. That's what Jesus came to do. It's what He's calling people to. Will you come with Him? Let's pray as you consider that. Father, I do pray that You would convince us in our hearts that You do love us. And that You look past our sin and our our shame and our guilt and our mess. And You look at the true us, the one who You created in the very beginning. And You say, I love You and I want You. I pray for those in here who are thinking they have to get their lives all cleaned up before that happens. That You would grab them by the shoulders and by the heart and say, no, I want You right now. That that cleanup process is sanctification. It's a lifelong project. Grab their hearts right now and convince them that life is found in following you. We pray that you would apply this to our heart by your spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.